really like is there's so many Ruby podcasts out there that are newsy, that, but this one dives into technical issues, and I really enjoy that. and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This is your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week on our panel, uh, we have a special guest rogue. Um, I met him at uh, the Rocky Mountain Ruby Conference in Boulder, and uh, he actually suggested this week's topic, so uh, we're going to welcome Jim Wyrick to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You want to introduce yourself really quickly, Jim, for those one or two people that don't know who you are? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, Jim Larrick, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I've been doing Ruby for over 10 years now. Um, I work for Edgecase, where I'm the chief scientist, and I've probably written software that you are using, such as Rake and uh, various mocking frameworks and uh, um, some XML builder stuff, too. So uh, you're probably using some of my code somewhere. All right, thanks, Jim. We're, yeah, we're still waiting for him to write something useful, so. <laughs> All right. Um, also on our panel, I'll get right on that. All right, thanks. <laughs> also on our panel, we have Avdi Grant. Hey, um, Avdi here, and uh, little known fact, I am actually an Emacs major mode. Emacs major. Okay. Um, we also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning from San Francisco, uh, where we're uh, just. Uh, two days away from the Golden Gate Ruby Conference, which uh, makes me horribly excited. So if I sound I'm incredibly upbeat on this podcast, that's why. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Josh. Uh, we also have David Brady. Hey, this is David Brady, I think. Can you guys hear me? We can all hear you. Okay, good. I've been having mic troubles today. This is David Brady, and I run Shiny Systems, and uh, I'm in Emacs minor mode that inherits from Avdi Grimm. All right, we also have James Edward Gray. You know, usually I worry about being outnumbered on this podcast by people from Utah. Today I'm worried about being outnumbered on this podcast by people who use Emacs. Yes! <laughs> I am a strong Emacs user as well, um, so I'm still tweaking it after 25 years. I got most of my .emacs file from Jim Wyrick. I have to, it's, it's, I learned it from watching you, okay? I learned it from you! <laughs> I don't use Emacs, but I do remember when it was written in Tico. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, I just launched railsrookies.com. Uh, it's just a, right now a list of courses that I'm going to be teaching over the next few months. So if you're interested in learning or becoming better at Ruby on Rails, then go check that out. So this week's topic, as suggested by Jim, we were talking and Jim mentioned that uh, a lot of Rails developers don't uh, do much object-oriented programming. And I thought that was interesting considering that it's in Ruby, which is a heavily object-oriented language. So Jim, why don't you go ahead and explain what you meant by that and then we'll start discussing it. Do we need a definition first? <laughs> Not again. No, okay, all right. <laughs> we'll wave that. Well, yeah, okay, that's that's a good question. What is object-oriented programming? And and you might think, well, we do Ruby, and that's an object-oriented language, so of course we're doing object-oriented programming. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, I know that when I was teaching, like, uh, C classes way back when, um, I had people who could write Fortran code no matter what language they were actually using. I think that's still true today. 
Um, and especially with something like Rails, Rails makes it really, really easy to massage uh, databases. And so you get a lot of objects that represent uh, stuff from the database. Uh, and, and database stuff is all about the data. And to me, object-oriented code is not so much about the data, but what, about what the code does and how it does it and what, what, can you, what does it do. Uh, the behaviors of objects. And I think we forget about those behaviors and, and concentrate on the data just a little bit in Rails programs. I, I, I agree, Jim. I think that's, uh, I, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, Pascal written in Smalltalk myself. Uh, but the, <laughs> the, the thing that I, that I see a lot in it, and I think maybe one of the, one of the flaws of, of Ruby is that it's too easy to uh, just throw together an array or a hash to hold a few values and not worry about what the, what you're doing with that stuff. Now, now wait, wait, wait. Uh, is that a flaw? Are we sure we're comfortable calling that a flaw? Well, anything that leads to bad programs would be a flaw, in my opinion. <laughs> right, but you also have some powerful constructs like arrays and hashes that allow you to do uh, important things inside of your objects to get the job done, right? So, so okay. So, I'm not saying that arrays and, and hashes are bad in and of themselves, but it, it's kind of like a gun without a safety. That you know, it's too easy to shoot yourself in the foot. Ooh, I actually, I, I, I actually nailed that metaphor. Wow. <laughs> so, I have, I have a question that I, I, I kind of want to uh, get out there early on. Um, does if 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 Ruby or if Rails programmers um, aren't um, aren't programming in an object-oriented way, uh, does it matter? Uh, and if so, why does it matter? Um, let, let, let me address that a little bit because since I brought the topic up. And I will say that programming in an OO way, just to be programming in an OO way, is not the goal. You know, that's, that doesn't make us good programmers it, just to be doing it that way. There are a lot of programs, and even Rails programs, that um, don't really need OO and just a purely data driven approach is perfectly fine and I have no problem with that. But there are times when you want to handle behaviors in your code and and because you're thinking so procedurally, you forget about the OO aspect of the language. I was just looking at some code yesterday where someone was checking to see if it responds to a particular method before he calls it. And it's in the same doggone object. Why don't he just call the method and put a definition up in the base class and just handle it polymorphically? He just wasn't thinking in an OO way at that point in time. Mm -hmm. that, um, that point Jim just raised that polymorphism, I think that's the easiest way to tell the difference between Rails code that is object-oriented and Rails code that isn't. Like, when you see polymorphism done well, then you know you're looking at object-oriented code, and when when you don't, you know that you're not. So, so for our uh, newer listeners, uh, why don't you explain what polymorphism is? Okay, so there's several concepts of object orientation, right? Um, and uh, attributes that represent object-oriented code. And um, probably two that affect this conversation the most um, would be encapsulation. Uh, and encapsulation is the idea that, uh, it, it basically what Jim was saying earlier, in that the data inside of objects is kind of a private detail of the objects. And it's what those objects can do uh, that makes them uh, interesting. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then uh, polymorphism is 
that the ability, let's see, I'm trying to think of a good way to say it, the way objects respond to messages. So a, a really good example of it that you see over and over again is a lot of times you'll see like a case statement where like if it's object XYZ, do this. If it's object, uh, you know, DEF, do this. Object ABC, do this. And, um, uh, and then they, they handle it three different ways. Whereas the right polymorphic way to handle that is to get a method on those different objects and then just, you know, you pass in the object and you call that method. And no matter what it is, it will do the right thing for that context of that object. So basically to use the, to use the object's behaviors themselves to differentiate what's actually happening to the object. That if I call such and such method on a XYZ object, it should do this. And if I call that method on a ABC object, it should do this because it knows what it is and it knows how to behave as it should. All right. So how does that help us with, with Rails? I, I guess we had one example. Do we have any other good examples of where people could use this to make their code better? better? Yeah. So, so uh, James touched on the case statement. And I'd say any, any piece of code that you look at in a Ruby program that has a case statement that switches on the class of an object is a bad smell. And that's, uh, that's not uh, the best object-oriented code you could be doing. One of the, the tricks that I use for polymorphism, you know, specifically with case statements, is when you write that, uh, that case statement, look at the top of the, the condition, basically, you know, the case foo, and ask yourself, kind of a law of Demeter, 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 um, ask yourself, am I allowed to know this? Um, and ask yourself, am I looking at somebody else's implementation or am I looking at guts of something? And you can often find that, yeah, if I wrap this up into an object, I can put this, the implementation of that case foo, I can put that into three different classes, and now all three classes can have the same behavior, and I can say, just handle this. And they can implement it differently, but the behavior is the same. And so that's, that's the trick that I use, is I, I just ask myself, am I allowed to know this? And almost, I, I'd hardly ever write case statements anymore, because I'm usually not. Let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Okay, go ahead. Um, I point out, sir, and, that your client uh, is say, the devil. So, um, is what? That your client is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, uh, let, me, let me point out like a, a common objection, I guess. Uh, so you have a, a case statement which, um, which looks at – which you know, might have maybe three different, three different cases for three different types of object. And, um, and for each type of business object – it writes out different HTML. Um, so the the sort of the the immediate polymorphic response to that seems like it would be okay. You you actually you you put stick a two HTML uh, method on each of those business objects, and then you just call it two HTML. But now uh, now those business objects are also responsible for displaying themselves, which seems like a pretty big uh, violation of the, the single responsibility principle. So I'm curious how people respond to that. Well, aren't you just trading one problem for another? <laughs> what about, what about and, and, and you, I'm and curious how Jim addresses that. I mean, I, have, I, I know how I address it. 
Um, yeah. And I certainly would not put a two HTML on on one of my business objects, but I'm curious how other people address it. Rails does encourage you to to make that trade off, by the way, and that's bad. This is the whole point of our topic. Actually, I'd like to touch on what David just said right there uh, briefly, and we'll steer back. But uh, David did just say Rails encourages a lot of this, and I think that is true, and that we need to think about that, that Rails in its design, for example, how it moves instance variables down from the controller to the views, uh, that that's a violation of encapsulation, right? Um, and yet, is that a bad thing? I don't, I don't really know that it is. I mean, let's imagine that that didn't exist, and you wanted to get data down to the views, then you'd have to call some method and say something like, you know, uh, render, uh, you know, whatever, and then pass some value down. Whereas the way Rails handles it is just the simple, through the simple assignment of the variable. So I think that is interesting that Rails does encourage us to, in some places, helpers are another great example and stuff like that. But uh, let's go back to Avdi's question. What about, you know, throwing to HTML or maybe to give a more Rails example, the Rails way would be to throw dot uh, to XML and to JSON on everything, right? Well, that's part of the problem is that you don't know in the business logic exactly how things are going to be displayed, whether it's going to be XML or HTML or to JSON. So putting the display responsibilities on that object is part of the problem, but we just move that into a different object, let the polymorphism work there, let the business object decide what information he wants to display, and go through some kind of presentation layer or whatever you need to get that done. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly easy thing to solve, but you have to think about it a little bit and not just put it that method, oh, it'd be convenient to put this method here and, and just drop it wherever you want to. Right, so what you're saying is that you would have, for example, a user uh, object that that manages users and does the user stuff. It has the user job, and then you have another one that's like the user presenter that that uh, presents the information for the user in whatever means that you want to put it in. Yeah, yeah. Um, the key is you ask yourself when you design an object, what does this object do for you, and you use it based upon what it does, not necessarily what data it has. That's the difference between a data-driven design and object-oriented design, I think. Um, here's, here's an example. I mentioned the XML Builder Library earlier. That is just simple library that builds up XML based upon calls that you make. You can abstract that a little bit. It's pretty much tied to XML at this point. But you could abstract a builder object where you just pumped in the data, and then it would format the data in whatever format you wanted uh, it to be in. So, uh, Jim, you're talking a lot about uh, presenters and things like that. Did you see uh, Steve Klabnik's recent blog posts about uh, object-oriented programming in Rails, and then he had a follow-up post about the Ruby presenters? Did you happen to read those posts? I, I did read those posts. Uh, well, I, I kind of scanned them quickly, uh, to be honest. But, yeah, I did see them. Yeah, and, and what did you think of those? I thought his points were really good for the most part. So for the benefit of the listeners, I did not see those posts. Can someone summarize? Sure. So uh, basically, uh, Steve said that, um, uh, for example, in his first post, his primary point was uh, Rails helpers are evil. 
And basically his reasoning behind that was that, you know, uh, they encourage you to uh, do, you know, individual functions for presentation stuff, whereas using something like a presenter object like Jim's been discussing uh, is, you know, generally superior. Now, Steve kind of said always superior, and I I don't think I agree with that. Um, You know, there's, I think there's cases where a, a simple one-off functions just fine. Uh, but for example, if you look at Rails helpers, uh, to make Steve's point a little bit, you know, look at something like the number helper. Because we have all these different ways to do numbers, like as currency or with delimiters or whatever, you end up with all these one-off functions that, you know, aren't really related to each other, you know, in every single view. And it's kind of a mess. Whereas it might be more useful to be able to treat something as a number and then have all kinds of conversion methods on it, right? So, uh, and then his second post basically goes into that in more detail as far as what are presenter objects and how do they work. Um, but what I, I thought was interesting, both about Steve's post and what Jim's been saying, is, you know, in object-oriented programming, you're always allowed to introduce new objects, and I think people kind of feel a resistance to that, you know, that they, uh, it, well, you know, in Rails, we, we think we're only supposed to make, you know, uh, the models that inherit from Active Record and the controllers that, you know, Rails will make for us, those kind of things. And I think some people forget that it's okay to make your own object that handles another part of the system that isn't necessarily directly tied to the database or you know, inside a controller or something like that. And I think that's kind of the resistance. I think that's absolutely true that people forget about the active, uh, that you don't have to make active record objects. You can make any kind of plain old Ruby objects to do what you need the system to do. And it's a little bit of thought about, you know, what behaviors you want your your objects to have goes a long way. I think by popular demand, we need to ask Josh Susser for a definition of plain old Ruby objects. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, it, it, they're the unseasoned Ruby objects. If you like, grill them in a little light oil and add some salt. They're great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, plain old Ruby objects. Objects. They're objects without all of the active record stuff added in them. And uh, I think a, a good way to think about them is they're they're objects that are not directly backed by database records. Um, and but Ruby objects are amazingly functional. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's the wrong adjective. They're, they're, they have a lot of functionality in them, and uh, you can do a lot with them. So, so I, I think that pulling out pieces of business logic into uh, separate classes that have a single responsibility is a great way to improve Rails programs. I built a little gem to help do that. Uh, I call it informal, and this is an example of taking a plain old Ruby object and enhancing it with a little bit of the active record API so that you can use it in your form, in your uh, in your view, and also in your controller uh, in the object validation and uh, redisplay lifecycle. And, and it's just a tiny bit of code. I pulled in some of the uh, active model uh, functionality and... And it's slightly tricky to do that, and that's the only reason I built informal because Active Model wasn't quite built to do this itself. So, the, I, and I, I extracted this basically from an application where I, I said, "Oh, I got to do this because it's so easy in Rails to, you know, with the way 
the ViewStuff works to build these uh, data structures and you know things like arrays and hashes that hold all of the data from the view but don't do anything with it. So we had a login form that we w didn't have backed with an active record uh, object. And it was too difficult to work with just as you know, arrays and hashes of data. So we built a little class and suddenly, oh, well, we should be, uh, we should be uh, just you know, plugging this thing directly into the form. Right. So, so, and and that, that made that whole part of the program so much easier to deal with. We could just build a very simple RESTful controller, didn't have to know about the structure of things as much. And uh, so that's, that's very classic object-oriented programming. It's not rocket science. It was very simple to do. And <clears throat> it's, a, it, it's something that I think all Rails programmers should know how to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, too, that uh, in a lot of cases we find that you know, people, they they kind of don't completely understand things like this, and so they just assume it's hard. And then you find out that, that something like that is actually really, really simple. And it's a really simple and elegant fix for whatever issue you have, where whether you're violating the single responsibility uh, principle or whether you're, uh, you know, doing some of the other things that we've talked about. Well, to be fair, some of this stuff used to be harder than it is now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it used to be kind of a pain to to come up with just like a regular old Ruby class, which would play nicely with routing helpers and and form helpers and all that stuff. And and you you a lot of times you just hit a point where it's like, oh, this is too much work. I'm just going to inherit from from Active Record. Um, and uh, Active Record in Active Record three, they they really have uh, done a very nice job of splitting things out into Active Model. And um, and making it a lot easier uh, and a lot better documented, you know exactly what interfaces your object needs to uh, needs to support in order to make uh, make the helpers happy. Now um, there's it, talking about this split between Active Record based uh, objects and uh, and and plain old Ruby objects, which is a term I kind of hate, but I'll I'll leave that aside for now. Um, uh, as 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 I as there's been kind of a little bit of a renaissance in in thinking about object oriented principles in Rails lately, um, I've noticed that a lot of people are um, are looking at an approach of of actually having kind of thin models not or not thin models but having thin active record objects which just uh, just have associations and validations and scopes in them and, nothing, and no business logic and they're basically treated as data access objects and then you have business objects which are just um, pure Ruby with no active record base and the business objects have an internal reference to their data access object. Um, I'm curious about opinions on this approach. So I actually have opinions on that. Um, I, I think it can be a good thing. Uh, I think the reason a move like that comes out to be positive is that uh, a lot of times we have business logic applies to multiple pieces of our database. For example, you know, this particular piece, uh, piece of business logic I'm managing may affect users and their subscriptions. And in that case, splitting it out into uh, a separate object seems to make more sense there because, you know, where does that functionality belong? On user or on subscription or whatever, you know, that the fact that I, I may be manipulating more than one thing at a time and working cross purposes like that where I just have to 
reference everything I'm going to work with, I think is more natural. But I think you can take it too far, too. I mean, you know, there there is a user object, and that is the user. And there are things that just apply to the user, like, you know, uh, resetting their password or something like that. And I don't see any problem attaching that functionality to the user object. In fact, I think it's good object-oriented design to do so because it is the behaviors that operate on that data. There is a little bit of a danger here as well that, that and maybe Avdi's uh, being deceptive uh, deliberately here, um, but because Avdi, you've read Object Thinking, haven't you? I have not. You've not. Okay. All right. So maybe this is unintentional. Um, but in, 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 in the great uh, philosophical war between uh, you know software composition where you you start at the bottom and build up and uh, software decomposition where you start at the top and build down um, there's this thing called the impedance mismatch problem and we've heard this stated a lot in other ways but specifically with object oriented programming the database is the it, it is the last bastion of the barbarians when it comes to anti object oriented thinking and so active record has completely surrendered to this, unfortunately. You you do not in, interact with active record in an object-oriented fashion, typically. You you get something out of the database and now you have passive data at rest and you can operate on it, you can query it, you can you can change it, and then you can tell it to save itself back to the database. It's it's very it's very state machine, it's very passive data, it's very database, data dash based programming. And this this can bleed up into the rest of your program because it's very easy to do this, right? It's 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 oh the easiest way to turn this object into something we can use on the form is to put a dot two HTML on it, and now we have passive HTML data that we can query and that we can pull and then we can pull out. And so, Avdi, your question of should we have a separate business logic layer, and James's answer of maybe yes, maybe no, sometimes yes, sometimes no. There's there's churn here, and the reason there is churn is because you've got the the database which is kind of running at one speed, and it's trying to mesh gears with object oriented code at another. And it, there really the reason why it feels like there's an impedance mismatch here is because there's an impedance mismatch here. I'm curious to know if anybody else has had this kind of problem, um, and I have a specific problem about presenters that happens with this. But I figured I'll I'll stop talking for a minute and let other people have a chance. I have definitely seen the impedance mismatch. In fact, there was one job I was on where I was working with another um, developer, and he had a very data-oriented way of approaching problems. I had a very object-oriented way of, of approaching problems, and we would butt heads all the time. Uh, couldn't agree on, 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 on how to approach problems at all. Uh, but it was very interesting because one of the projects I was working on was, um, I forget the details, but it was some kind of authentication um, library that we were using. And we had to authenticate users against roles, against you know particular privileges, against uh, particular jobs that people needed to do. And I came up with an object-oriented design very early in it that specified how the behave, how the system would behave. And because I captured the behavior of the system, that tended to be pretty stable. Uh, throughout the life of this project, and we coded up the objects and we were able to work with that. Now, the database side of the house had entirely different issues. They couldn't decide whether they wanted to go with a fully relational database or maybe an LDAP system would be good, and I think we were making schema changes and fiddling with it down to the last week before the thing went live. 
But the behavioral description of the system implemented by the OO piece of it was steady and constant. All we had to do is change the mapping on how it was stored. I think that's generally true, uh, particularly within an application. Behavior tends to be the constant there. What you want to do with the program tends to be the same, so you program with that with an OO. However, the very interesting thing, this is where the OODB mismatch comes into, is that when you start talking about larger um, applications spread across different um, user bases, perhaps, um, the emphasis switched from the behavioral aspect of that to the data aspect of it. And data tends to be the thing that is more constant. That's why we have humongous enterprise-oriented databases um, that lots of different groups are using and pulling different pieces out of it because that tends to be what comes out of the big enterprise-level stuff, whereas at an application level, it's, it's the behaviors that remain constant. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, kind of looking at the idea of having a separate uh, business logic layer from the data layer itself, um, it seems like that would make it easier to do things like you know, switch from a relational database to, say, a document database or uh, things like that. Another, another point where it might be a win is uh, if you have several applications sharing the same business logic, their data wouldn't necessarily have to be exactly the same. So those, the, the lower level could be a little different, but the business logic on top of it, if it was written correctly, could work in those scenarios. So what do you call that business layer? Are they models or supermodels or? Um... I like supermodels. <laughs> They're models. They're just models. Yeah. They're objects. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if they, if, they, if they model a concept in your business domain, then I think mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's correct to call them models. Yes, and that's a sure. trap that Ruby programmers fall into. They think that app slash models is the directory for their ORM layer, and it's only for – there must be a one-to-one -one mapping <laughs> between classes there and tables in the database, and that is not true. Yeah, a very, very brief rant here. I'm going to get up on, on the soapbox for just a second. Uh, if you have an object which represents a concept in your business domain, it belongs in app models. It does not belong in lib. What? Yeah. Not in lib? <laughs> it belongs in vendor plugins. Since <laughs> <laughs> Rails 3, it belongs in engines in a gem. Oh, I, I keep everything in my dot bundle directory. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so before we get too far afield, um, in the, uh, I, I think there's a couple other uh, topics to look at at the ways that, that Rails can uh, encourage people to do poor object-oriented programming or discourage good object-oriented programming. <laughs> that, um, so so object-oriented programming, typically I think of it as encapsulation, polymorphism, and inheritance. Um, the, and we haven't talked about inheritance very much here, but I think that that's the number one pitfall for people trying to do object-oriented programming. They, they try and, you know, they think that inheritance is so key to object-oriented programming that if they're not inheriting from something, they're doing something wrong. And usually it's the other way around. The, being able to delegate stuff to another object on your to take care of something on your behalf, that's usually a better way to do that. And I was going to point out anyway that inheritance is the only way I'm ever going to get any money. 
<laughs> waiting, waiting for your parent objects to die. That's a whole topic. That's great. <laughs> Let, let's let's do a show on. Now that. we're talking about cost control and, and whatnot. Oh, so, I'm gonna so I'm gonna write a gem called Vulture. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so Active Record Base. This is this is one of the things that. Um, Experienced object-oriented programmers will complain about object or, or about Active Record Base, and other other Rubyists will just look at that and go, "What? What's the big deal?" Right. And and part of it is uh, is what um, what Avdi has been talking about here about the the way to uh, incorporate the persistence into your business model in Rails is to inherit from Active Record Base. And that's the standard way that everybody does that, and it, that that adds all sorts of weirdness to to things. Uh, for instance, you have to talk to the database when you are doing your tests. You can't just test your domain logic. You have your business domain logic. You're also testing all of your Active Record queries. So if if your if the persistence layer was included in your models uh, through an API. That was meant to be used as you know through composition, then that would you know, that would simplify that a lot, and people wouldn't have to be reinventing this stuff all for themselves. Well, well, to really have that though, isn't that exactly what the database adapter does? You compose with that, and the uh, save and create methods just delegate down to that. Well, it, it, if there were a clean uh, membrane between those two layers that would I, I would agree but there's too much of SQL that leaks into it's a leaky abstraction you get all the, you get all of the SQL stuff that you have to deal with within active record and that that pops up even in the API all over the place and you know if you're doing joins or includes within your active record queries those things become very obvious and there's we don't have to go back in Rails very far to remember a time when there were bugs in the Active Record adapt, you know, the MySQL adapter or the Postgres adapter. Remember that was always lagging the MySQL adapter. And you know, in theory, we don't have to test the database. We don't have to test the database connection. And I, I think that's great. Um, and we can now say we can be cavalier about it and say let's not test the database connection. You know, we can we can stub and mock that, but. I don't. We don't have to go back very many years, 2009, 2008, when there were some really, you know, you did not have to have too many joins before you really needed an acceptance test that exercised the full stack. So that's uh, an interesting point, but um, uh, Josh talks about like having a layer separate where we went through that, and the interesting part about that is wouldn't that create more of the problem you worry about, Josh, where people are just throwing together arrays and hashes of data and running through those to do things? Uh, perhaps, but that is an easier problem to mitigate than the problem that we have right now. You know, that, that, that can be solved just with a little bit of good design. The, the problem of the, the persistence layer leaking, leaking into the business domain logic layer um, isn't something that's really easy to deal with in in Rails right now. It's in fact very difficult. Interesting. So I'd like to go back to the question Abdi asked a long time ago, almost back at the beginning. He said, "Why do all this? Why does it matter? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. can't we just build a procedural Rails app, and doesn't that just work? And why why do this? Why do we have to?" 
Well, apparently it does work. I mean, people are doing it, right? It works up to about 20,000 lines of code. That's right. That's right. Or, or based on a client that I'm looking at right, well, not necessarily right now, but in the past two weeks, up to 70,000 lines of code. And that's, in a Rails project, that's, that's too freaking big. Right. But, but what, what, what I think we're talking about isn't necessarily does it, you know. But what what I'm saying is it doesn't scale. The complexity doesn't scale beyond a certain point. Eventually, trying to have, if you have passive data, you have to have universal adapters. This is kind of like my comment about the database adapter. It has to be universal in order for everybody to interface it in every possible way. And if you write procedurally, you've got passive data. You must protect this data from any kind of weird sideways access. And that can work up to 5,000 lines of code, 10,000 lines of code, 20 or 30 if you're really bloody-minded. Um, but eventually it starts to – the technical debt just starts to go exponential on you. Where like Jim said, if you say here's the behavior at the very beginning and then you discovered that the behavior didn't change. It stayed very stable throughout the entire – now they refactored. They changed implementations. But the behavior stayed very stable the entire time. Right. So what we're talking about here isn't whether or not you can build a Rails app that works. What we're talking about is is uh, maintenance costs down the, down the line. Right. Should you build a Rails app that works? No, wait. That's not what I was trying to say. <laughs> and I think that's very important, capturing the behavior and having that be constant. That's the benefit of, of going with the OO approach. Mm-hmm. Actually, the better question is, and there's the discriminator, it's not can you build a Rails app that works in procedural, because the answer is absolutely yes. The question is, can you build a Rails app that can be maintained? Right. That's a great question, I think. And the answer is, the answer is maybe. The answer is given enough resources. Yeah. 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 The answer in my experience is um, as long as you're willing to accept um, a very, very slow evolution of features and and a a fair amount of, of oops, it's broken. Yeah. Uh, we have to roll back. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Well, I want to raise my hand and, and ask a question. And this one really is, I'm really good at writing good procedural Rails code. Mm-hmm. So what approaches are there to uh, make my life and my code easier to deal with? I was just thinking about a very similar question. It's basically the same question. Like, what is the one thing you can do uh, to approach your code, your Rails code, more ob- in a more object-oriented way, and uh, or my even answer several be, things, or even several yeah. things. Well, well, I don't, I don't think I have time to list several things, but but I'll I'll say one. Uh, don't use generators. Uh, generators, um, they sort of push you in the direction of first of all thinking about the data first, because you know you you generate a resource uh, with all of your data attributes listed out, and um, and they also push you in the direction of thinking of things in terms of a one-to-one-to-one relationship, table, model, helper, controller, view. Um, you know, uh, just uh, start writing that. Start writing that object as, as just a, uh, I'll, I'll say a plain old Ruby object, um, representing your your domain. Um, you know, and and add things in um, as you need them. Okay, so you you said very succinctly and very well the the the, the answer that I was actually going to suggest. I recently did this on a small project, and it was absolutely brilliant. I, I learned this trick from Smalltalk. Um, so in Smalltalk, when you you start designing your object, you build everything together, but you're in this image, right? It's everything's in memory in this virtual machine inside the image, and so you can put off 
serializing to the database. You can leave it alone forever because you can turn off Smalltalk, the image goes away, you bring it back up, and all the objects that were in memory are still in memory. So why not go ahead and just translate that into your next Rails app? If Just for fun, write your next Rails app. Start off by defining the objects and the interactions, and don't inherit from Active Record Base. Don't save them anywhere. Just leave them in memory. Let the server hang on to them. Okay, uh, all right, you're going to need a, a, like a, a class-level hash on each class, and this is crazy, and it's starting to get into the stupid ver- side of crazy, but work out those behaviors and those interactions, and I was, I was staggered by how many really obvious, like I was going to go to right to the whiteboard and draw my entity relationship diagram for the database that we sat down and we started figuring out, well, this object really talks to this object, but you know what? It turns out that this object really has more of this data. And just by leaving the data in the server, okay, when you reboot the server, you lose all your data because it's in memory, right? But this is just a scratch server. It's just a dev server. And if you just leave these things out there, work out the interactions between them, and then figure out how to serialize you push the impedance mismatch problem all the way down to the very end to the database layer, and then the database gives you grief because it really is angry that you have you know dissed it like that. But it's it's extremely enlightening. I highly encourage anybody to try that on a project once. You will be astonished at how your object model changes. That's awesome. That's a good idea. But I'd also like to I'd also like to make the suggestion that whenever you want to get data out of an object and do something with it, stop and think if you can do the reverse. Instead of asking for data, see if there is an object you can tell to go do something. Uh, the the uh, idiom is tell, don't ask. And uh, if you start asking that question, that helps as well. But I was, I was going to basically say the same thing. that uh, I, I learned the most when I started trying to push more than I pull. So... When you call the method, you know, to pass in all the parameters needed to figure it out and stuff like that. That's kind of what Active Record gets a little backwards in that it, it basically forces us to pull everything because, you know, you pull that record from the table and then it has all those attributes in them that you pull them out uh, to figure out what you're doing. And, and most of the time, you know, it, it's much better than you know, say pulling this attribute and changing it to something else, it would be much better to call a method that has the correct behavior to affect the desired change. I, I actually have three small, three small things for people to watch out for that um, are, are uh, you know, e- e- easy to avoid if you just think about it. And, and one is uh, case statements. So, uh, especially case statements that uh, switch on the class of the of the object. So if you see a lot of case statements, especially case statements with object classes in them, uh, that's an opportunity to move to a more polymorphic system and have better object-oriented design. Uh, another thing that I've already mentioned is uh, simple data structures, like arrays or hashes, or arrays of hashes of arrays, uh, like we see in Active Record a lot. Uh, the, that that could often be modeled better as a class. That, mm-hmm. uh, primitive, with, primitive obsession. Yeah, avoid it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, one thing that I'll, I'll just say you should never, ever do is inherit from array or hash. And, you know, unless you're building a, you know, another fundamental data structure class, you know, like, like the, you know, the, the hash within different access, just don't do it. If you have a, if you have a class that has a bunch of, thi- has a, a bunch of things in it, have it 
have an array instance variable and put the things in there. Don't inherit from array. So, so compose from array and hash, but don't inherit. Absolutely. Thank okay. you. All okay, right. that's the forwardable library is your friend. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I would even say Josh gave a couple of circumstances where it's okay to inherit from array and hash, and actually, I would say ignore those. Just don't even do it because. Um, Ruby takes some implementation shortcuts with those classes, and every now and then it can come back and bite you because it doesn't follow uh, the proper rules. Uh, an example I can think of right off the top of my head is that uh, people inherit from string, and then when Ruby does like a regex replacement, sometimes it skips string initialization. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you may end up with a string, but your uh, initialized method never got called. So, yeah, just don't do it. There's, there's so many dragons down that road, you're going to get bit. Well, and also in Ruby 1.9, haven't they broken most of that stuff out now so that if you really want a hash-like object, you can just inherit from, you know, you can just mix in enumerable, right, and, and a couple other modules, and then build enough data to support those, and down the road you go, right? Yeah, basically what Avdi said is there's, in the standard library, there's the delegate uh, library and the forwardable library. Uh, and it, you would be better in, in those cases to use those so that uh, right. there's a real object there. Right. Well, but if you if you mix in enumerable, your object will now present the API of, you know, an array or a hash externally. Absolutely. Rake, Rake actually does that. It actually provides an array-like uh, object called a file list. And the original version had that inherit from array, and I found that it was it was much easier to more closely emulate the real behavior of array if I didn't inherit from it but delegated to it. Uh, conversion issues came up and that made that true. Oh, that's really interesting. So one other thing I want to ask, and, and I was going to ask this earlier, um, so we kind of talked about, uh, the. I think we talked about the presenter pattern a little bit with uh, Stephen Klabnik's um, article, and we, we've talked a lot about models and active, active record. Um, does this apply in, in cases with the controller at all, or is this more focused toward you know handling handling things well for the view, and handling things well for the the model? Oh, good question. You know, the controller is an interesting beast because I think everybody's always trying to find a way to make it go away, and and, and really that seems like almost the ultimate best thing the controller could do is go away, because ideally, right, all of our controllers should be almost identical, right? We're, we're told that that, that you know, uh, RESTful controller with the seven actions and they're just predefined, that would be, in the ideal scenario, that would be every controller, right? And, and that's we, so wrong. And it's so wrong. But, but in a way, it, what, what the controller does, right, the job of the controller is to get some data and then prepare for the view, right, and to, to, to show that view, to trigger the process that will show that data to the user. And ideally, that would be handled in some uniform way that wouldn't require us to write code at all, uh, but it's not really the way it works. Um, so I, I think as far as how I handle the controller is I try to keep as little bit of uh, anything going on in there as possible. You know, I want to just call a few queries to get some uh, data back and then uh, 
and then uh, hand off to like presenter objects or whatever that are actually going to make sure that the view is uh, uh, rendered as needed. It's probably worth noting that that um, the control that the MVC pattern was originally um, was originally built up with with desktop event driven GUIs in mind, and I think uh, fatter controllers probably make more sense in that context than they do on the web. Just a thought. My 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 devil's advocate there is that I find a lot of people, especially when they when they're when I say like a Bible thump and rest advocate, when you know a, re a real rest evangelist. Nine times out of ten, and I'm not trying to like incriminate them, uh, you know, character-wise. But what I find is that um, somebody that's really religious about rest, all they're really trying to do is push the pull the impedance mismatch up from the database, up through Active Record, up into the API, so that now you have data at rest um, in the controller level. And uh, so I'm. I tend to be the one guy on the team who advocates restless controllers, and you know you should you should hit a controller and and it should make the system behave a certain way rather than necessarily give you back a list of data. You know the 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 controller should not just be an API into your SQL database to allow you to list objects and iterate on them. You should have uh, some real behaviors there. Is that wrong? Uh I think it's just a different focus. the The, the point of of REST is, uh, I think about um, it's about applications interacting with each other, and mm -hmm. the URLs become the API. Yeah. And and you know, there there's there's another level of impedance mismatch problem there. Yeah. So the so so it it depends on where your uh, your focus is. So I think that REST is a really good solution to to the problems of applications and servers interacting with each other. That's but, right. But it's not going to give you the best design center necessarily for uh, how your op your application operates internally. Yeah. We have we have <laughs> we have seen that it really reduces the amount of code that you write in your application because a lot of the a lot of the coding has now been pushed into the framework and you can reuse that. So that yeah. is one advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 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 the. The common Rails idea of what is restful isn't terribly restful anyway. So, but that is a definitely a topic for another show. Yeah, we should we should we should do a whole show like on service oriented, uh, splitting things out like that because a lot of the the SOA guys that I'm talking to are actually advocating staying away. You know, having REST as a basic fallback, but also having very complex controllers just to reduce the number of trips you have to make between services and. I need to stop talking about that because it needs to be for another show. Yep. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead. It sounds like this is a good breaking point, and we're we're definitely going to go over this time. Um, we'll get into the picks. Uh, if you're new to the show, uh, I say this every week. If you're new to the show and you don't know what the picks are, basically we just uh, talk about one or a few things that uh, we've been using over the last week or the last little while that we like or you know kind of uh, tie into. Uh, make our lives better. And they can be code-related. They can be non-code-related. I mean, we've had office toys and different toys. And and, uh, and anyway, so, you know, it, it can be just whatever. Um, so uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, and uh, we'll start out with Josh. Uh, okay, so my first pick is the Rails Bridge Workshops. So uh, any of you guys heard of that? The no. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so, so RailsBridge has been around for a couple of years, <clears throat> um, and it's a it's a group of people who are 
supporting increased diversity in the Rails development community by providing free Rails training workshops for women and their friends. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so... so uh, I have women friends. Yeah, the, so, so it's... Uh, they set it up. It, it, it's a it's a yucky analogy, but it's kind of like ladies' night at a bar. You can get in free if you're a woman, or if you're in the company of a woman. Uh, so, so, Rails is the new meat market. I love it. <laughs> it, it's, it so, so I've I've volunteered and taught at a couple of these workshops. Uh, they it's you know they typically do a Friday night. Uh, set up your laptop so that you can do the uh, you know be all ready to go for the all day training on Saturday. The, they've been doing these uh, at a couple, in a couple cities. There have been a bunch of them here in San Francisco. They do them in New York. They often do them before a, a Ruby conference in whatever city you happen to be in. They'll uh, work with the organizers. And, uh, and they're great. It's an all-day training. You do test-driven learning of how to program. And, and a lot of the women who've been doing these workshops – I, I see them get hired at Pivotal Labs or at um, uh, Blazing Cloud or various other Rails consultancies here in San Francisco. So it's a it's a it's a great way to uh, expand the Rails development community. We all know how hard it is to hire Rails developers these days, and it's also a great way to enhance our diversity, which is uh, a, you know a, a problem for another show or a topic for another show, <laughs> but. Uh, I, you know, there's there's definitely uh, a lot we can be doing there, and I think it's great that they're doing this. So, uh, yeah, Rails Bridge, and um, it's you know if you have a if you have a friend who's you know not happy with her job as a PHP coder, you know bring her to one of these uh, one of these workshops and get her going on Rails. Sounds terrific, James. Um, what was your wife doing when she brought home that awesome regex problem, and then she became the goddess of regexes? Uh, she was working for a food company at the time, and they had to process just massive amounts of ugly data, and she kept coming home frustrated with it and j just asked me to show her something better. So I sat down and taught her regular expressions one evening, and she used that to process through massive amounts of data. That's awesome. I, I thought <laughs> you said that, and what came to my mind was uh, sorting food by regex. Anyway, it's kind of like that. <laughs> okay, so that's enough for me this week. I don't. That's my only pick. All right, sounds terrific. Uh, by the way, you, you did mention, and we've heard a few times. This is a topic for another time. If you want to hear about those topics, go to rubyrogues.com, click on request a topic, and either vote them up if they're already in there, or type them in. So uh, yeah, and and the diversity topic is is an interesting one. So anyway, um, James, go ahead. Okay, so I have the absolute best pick this week. Sorry, you guys all lose. Um, a long time ago, there was a, a, a great blog post by Ryan Tomeko uh, called I Like Unicorn Because It's Unix. And uh, that, that went around and had a lot of, uh, it was very popular uh, just because it basically went through the Unicorn server, which is my favorite Rails server uh, because it uses all these Unix idioms to do what it does. And um, if you like that kind of thing, or if you think you would like to know about that kind of thing, uh, the author of Unicorn has started his own mailing list called uh, Unix System Programming with Ruby. And so there's this mailing list, and he's going through and basically teaching you the Unix model, what it is, how to use it in your code, etc. 
on this uh, mailing list. Uh, and it's oh great. yeah, it's really great so far. The articles are uh, they start at the very beginning. You do not have to have like a very deep knowledge in this topic. Um, he actually gives the requirements. You need to know Ruby. A little bit of knowledge is ba- of Bash is helpful, but not required. You do not need to know C. And the fourth thing you need to know is that like uh, Ruby can have um, uh, multiple variables can point to the same object. So you can do like, you know, A equals some string and then B equals A and those both those variables point to the same object. And if you change one, you're going to change both in effect. Um, and that if you know those four things, you can get on this list and follow along. Um, and it's very basic, and there's a lot of great people on there. I've, I've watched some people talking and steps, and I have some pretty high hopes for this list that it might become like a, a kind of a replacement for the Ruby talk of old. So if you find this kind of stuff remotely interesting or you've always wanted to learn about Unix and you know, is intimidating to you or whatever, this list is the perfect place for you, and I, I recommend it. All right. That cool. sounds really interesting. Wow. Um, I used to be a sysadmin, and, and I, I don't completely understand that stuff. So sounds good. Uh, David, go ahead. Uh, okay, so just two real quick. Um, the first one is uh, the awesome print gem. Uh, we were always playing with different ways to present data better than IRB or, you know, at the console or in the Rails console. And uh, I've used, I think I've used them all. I've used, you know, Werble and Herb and Boson, uh, which is great. Um, I've used Look-See, which was really interesting, but I really didn't quite get into it. And uh, I was uh, pairing with Giles Boquette uh, last week and he showed me Awesome Print, uh, which is awesome. It's uh, It colorizes and it really clarifies things out really nicely. Um, and the other one, and this is going to sound a little bit traitorous, um, but I'm going to recommend vimcasts.org. Um, I, uh, I'm a, definitely a fan of, uh, Emacs, but I believe that whatever editor you use, you should know it. You should, you know, you should know more than just, you know, copy, paste, insert. And vimcast.org is the single best uh, screencast uh, I think I've seen in the past two years just in terms of production value I mean, production quality I mean they're very well put together they're very cleanly edited they're like five minutes long each there's like 35 episodes you can sit down and watch them all in whatever five times 35 minutes is um, well except for that you can't do that because your brain will explode after about the third one because he, he really gets into just some great details on that so if you're a Vim user you need to be watching the Vim casts um, I really, really, really wish somebody would start Emacs casts uh, and put the same level of quality and excellent production value out there. Them some picks. All right, thanks, Dave. Um, Avdi, go ahead. So, um, uh, if you're if you're listening to this, chances are you're probably using Git for version control, and uh, and chances are ninety nine percent of the interactions that you do uh, with Git are dealing with github hosted repositories and lately i've been using a git wrapper called hub um which is available on github uh which is just it's a wrapper that adds a lot of sugar around interactions with the github repository so you don't you don't ever have to specify like the whole repo you can just specify um you know like for for 
uh, for a project, just, you know, username slash project name. Uh, and lots of extra stuff like that, like really easy. If you've got a project locally, you can just very quickly create a, uh, a repo on GitHub to, uh, to, to push it to and stuff like that. So that's been uh, making my life a little bit easier. Um, non-programming pick. Um, I am also uh, a big coffee nerd. And uh, I've got like, I try to collect pretty much every coffee making implement um, under the sun. So I've got I've got press pots and I've got a vacuum pot and uh, various other contraptions. Um, lately, I or recently I acquired an AeroPress, and I don't think I picked this before. I hope not. Um, but uh, uh, we, I've been been drinking AeroPress coffee lately, and uh, I think it's it's some of the best coffee I've ever had. So uh, the AeroPress, it's made by a Frisbee company, but it makes great, great coffee. I, I, I got to say that, that the coffee nerds are right up there with the Emacs fanatics in terms of, of you know, how, how much they tweet and post about this stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks, Avdi. Uh, that was great. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go next, and uh, then we'll hear some more wisdom from, from Jim. Um, my first pick is a mailing list that's being put together by Amy Hoy. Um, it's called the Institute of Awesome. If you're a freelancer, this is something that you probably ought to go check out. Um, every day I get an email in my inbox and basically it just kind of introduces some topic and then links to a PDF that has a ton of information in it about here's something you should think about doing with your freelance business. And, uh, it is it's really just awesome. And um, I can see it as kind of a marketing tool for her other uh, product, which is Let's Freckle. But um, anyway, I, I just have to say it. Um, I've, I've read the, a handful of them. You know, I'm, I, ha I haven't been a had time to get through all of them. But just the ones I've gone through, they talk about like building a, a process uh, that you go through for uh, user stories, building a process that you go through for interviewing clients and things like that so that basically um, you can spare your executive function um, for the more important things because this stuff is already pretty much uh, lined up and it's it, it's just awesome. So, so that's one that I want to point out. Um, the other one that... Uh, that I've been just uh, doing stuff with. I've been playing a game on my iPad, and I've actually had it for a while on my um, on my uh, computer, and that is World of Goo. Um, this is something that several people recommended to me. It's a really fun game, uh, kind of a physics-based uh, game where you build towers and structures to, to get stuff, and uh, uh, you, you're basically trying to get your goo balls into this pipe and then if you get enough of them, then you can kind of get – you can actually get an OCD uh, rating on each level if you get enough goo balls in. And so that's a fun one. And the last one is also a game that I've been playing online. And this is one that David introduced to me last year at uh, Ruby Web Conference, and it's Bloons Tower Defense. <laughs> that's B-L-O-O-N-S. Um, it's, it's somewhat addictive, and I, I kind of play it like every few months I'll, I'll get caught – you know, I'll play it when I'm taking a break from my coding. And uh, it's a fun game. It's a tower defense game. You build a bunch of towers and you, you try and uh, pop all the balloons before they get through. And anyway, so uh, um, that, that's it. Just remember that the monkeys are right-handed and uh, you'll do all right. So 
Anyway, uh, Jane, uh, Jim, go ahead. I've got a couple picks here that I'd like to share. Um, first one is a programming book, but it's an older programming book. Um, about 10 or so years ago, a little, probably a little more, I stumbled across this book. And believe it or not, it's from Microsoft. But before you kind of... <gasps> Out, yeah, Microsoft Press, and they put out a book called Writing Solid Code, which yes. was one of the early books that really, really changed the way I was doing development. It really affected the way I was uh, coding. And this is before the Agile movement. This is before Ruby. This is before all of that. And basically, it's a he. It's a, one of the managers for I think it was Excel. Um, how he kind of inherited the project and how he kind of turned it around from kind of a buggy program to actually a really good product. And he talked about a lot of the techniques that they use there to kind of turn it around. And he talks about stuff like uh, owners or developers need to own the bugs that they write. They can't just pass it off to QA. He says there's no free features, uh, don't, so don't allow needless flexibility. That's, you know, that's the whole you ain't going to need it uh, motto from Agile right there. So it's kind of a precursor to that whole Agile thing. I've been really enjoying rereading this, and I'm, I'm hoping to kind of do a talk on this at RubyConf in a couple weeks. So uh, kind of apply these old ideas and recycle them around for that. Um, other pick I have is uh, this is more of a general pick, but a couple years ago I picked up a ukulele fairly cheap. And uh, if you are ever interested in learning a stringed instrument and uh, you want to pick up something that's easy, it's fairly inexpensive, that's just doggone fun to play, go to, a, go to a store and find yourself a good ukulele that you can play. And I really recommend that. We've got about three or four ukulele players in the office now, and we've declared Friday to be the day we all bring them in. We jam a little bit at the end of the day. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. That's totally um, awesome. Is there a good place to learn to play the ukulele? Uh, you know what? Look around. Uh, there is a ukulele club here in Cincinnati that uh, it's – Totally for beginners, we come and we uh, go through some of the music. Um, if you're a guitar player, ukuleles are easy to pick up because essentially it's the top four strings of a guitar. So it's easy to move from guitar to ukulele. And if and since there's only four strings, even a non-guitar player can pick it up pretty easily. So, so Jim, I have a quick question for you, and, and it's a confession. I am physically incapable of taking ukuleles seriously. Um, is there something I can do to fix that? Or is that the correct response towards ukuleles? Are they meant to be just lighthearted and fun? Okay, so now, now, now that reminds me. I actually got a secondary pick related to this. Go and look up on YouTube Jake Shima Bakuro. Okay. And You're going to have listen, to type that into Skype. I will, I will type it into Skype here. I think I said his name right, but go Google some videos of him. Uh, the first video I saw, he was playing My Guitar Gently Weeps on a ukulele, and all of a sudden I realized that ukuleles are not toy instruments. They are real wow. serious instruments that serious mu uh, musicians will play. And, uh, yeah, okay. Google for, uh, for Jake, and you will, be, you will be blown away. Shima Bukuro, I bet he also plays the shamisen. <laughs> Which is the Japanese banjo. So I just thought, I just thought you sneezed. No. All right. All right. Well, I, I guess that's it. We're gonna go ahead and wrap this up. Um, okay, before we do, one thing. Uh, I'm usually the book club guy, but this week uh, Josh is taking over. So Josh, you want to give us an update on? Uh, oh yeah. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so David, you weren't on the show last week, but uh, because you always talk about small talk best practice patterns, yes, we decided to use that as our book for our book club next month. That's awesome. And uh, and because he's an thoroughly awesome guy, Kent Beck has agreed to come be on the show with us to Squee! discuss the book. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I, I wanted to let the listeners know that so they can be reading the book. And uh, we're also going to set up uh, something on the site for people to submit questions so that uh, we can have a little more listener interaction and get their, uh, get them involved in the book club more. All so, right. So, so yeah, we'll put something up on the on the website for pe- uh, a way for people to submit questions. I will try very hard to keep my fanboyism in check. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll just have a very long pre-show for you to get it all out of your yeah, system. Yeah, just, just work it out. Just work it out. Just run around the desk, Dave. Just run around the desk. <laughs> <laughs> if if you're uh, not familiar with uh, Kent Beck, he is. Uh, not just the small talk guy. He was involved with extreme programming, if I remember correctly, and uh, I think he was also involved in the that original group that kind of drew up the yep. Agile Manifesto. So, I mean, he's been around for a while, and he's made a lot of contributions to computer science. And so, uh, it's it's really really exciting to have him come on and, and share his experience with us. Mm-hmm. All right, so now I'm going to wrap this up. Um, if you want more information about the show, you can go to rubyrogues.com. If you have a topic that you want to uh, suggest to us, then go ahead and go to the website and click request a topic. Uh, you can get us in iTunes. And uh, if you have any other um, uh, podcast aggregators that you want to find us in, then uh, email me, chuck at teachmetocode.com, and let me know. And uh, we'll see if we can get them added to those as well. Um, if you want to leave a review in iTunes, that really helps us out as well. Good reviews, bad reviews, preferably good reviews, but we'll take what we can get. Um, and uh, beyond that, we will catch you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Oh, thanks you. for having me.